page 15. I want to make some announcements uh, for you. Uh, tomorrow, Labor Day, our Labor Day picnic, noon, Lake Erie Metro Park. $7 fee to get in with the, your vehicle. We'll start eating at noon. We ask you to bring some of the food for that, a side dish, dessert, and a beverage. The church provides the main dish. We have a particular pavilion reserved there. It's called the Muskrat Pavilion. It's the same one we've used for our last several picnics. So mo- many of you have been there already. If not, there's a map that is at the information center, so you can pick that up. And we hope to see you all tomorrow. I have no idea what the weather is supposed to be, uh, but I don't trust the weather anyway, uh, the weatherman. So we will, we will be there unless it's just hurricane uh, or tornado kinds of uh, warnings. I think we get tornadoes here, not hurricanes, right? But uh, unless it's something like that, we're on for, for noon, okay? And we'll see how it, how it turns out. And then this coming Thursday is the blood drive here from 1.30 to 7.30. And a number of slots between 1.30 and 7.30 have already been filled in. There are still some slots available. So if you intended to sign up for the blood drive and just have not done that, you can do so today, but you've got to do so today. And you can do it at the information center before you leave, and they can show you what slots are, are still available. That's this Thursday. This Saturday at our house at 10 a.m. is the next Newcomer's Brunch. If you've never been to one of our brunches, we would love to have you uh, at our house to be able to meet you in that kind of informal setting. There's no program that we go through. It's just us getting to know you and you us. And if you have any questions about community, I'll be happy to try to answer them as best I can. But we would like it if you're there just so we can get to know you. If you want to come, we need to know today because we need to know how much uh, food to make. Uh, And uh, you can let the folks at the Information Center know, and they'll give you an invitation that has our phone number and a map to our our place on it. And then next Sunday, one week from today, we start our four-week newcomers uh, orientation class. That's during this hour for the four weeks of September. It'll be in uh, one of the adult rooms across the hallway out that back door, and I'll be leading that. So those of you that are new to our church and would like to know more about it, that's why we offer this. It's for your benefit. It's for information only. It doesn't obligate you to join our church, and we're not going to hassle you after the class is over. We give you the information, and then you pray about what you're going to do with it. Uh, But if you are looking for a church and you... Uh, are interested in our church at all, that newcomer's orientation is something that you ought to take. It'll be those four weeks this hour starting next week. For the rest of you uh, that are not in that class, you'll be in in here. Actually, there'll be a couple other classes going on as well. The Crossroads class, that's the college age group. They'll be meeting outside this room as well. And I think the friends group might be having a class as well. So whoever is left after all those classes, you'll be in here. And uh, next Sunday, we have our missionary uh, to Kenya, Dan Huffsteller, is going to be with us. And he's going to be giving an update uh, on their work there and teaching God's Word. Uh, And then we have some of our own men the other three weeks teaching in this uh, room for uh, the other weeks in September. So that all starts next week. If you were here for the first hour, uh, you heard me talk about uh, a philosophy, a methodology of ministry that is current in American evangelicalism. It has really almost taken over the landscape of church life in America over the last several decades. And the gist of it is be hip, be cool, be in tune with the culture. There is a three-minute parody that's been circulating for the last few years, a video of churches that are hip and cool. 
And it was actually made, this is the thing that gets me, it was actually made by a church that's hip and cool, making fun of churches that are hip and cool. But nevertheless, uh, it, I find it to be funny. You may not. If you don't think it's funny, give me a courtesy chuckle anyway. Uh, but we're going to show this uh, three-minute video. Do we have the three-minute video? All right. You can't stop it. It's coming to a town near you. It used to be called contemporary. Some call it relevant. We're so cool, we call it contemporvent. Young, hip guy welcoming all with graffiti and cool glasses. I welcome everybody with arms wide open, revealing my tattoo so you know I have a past. Quirky transition to band. Invite everyone to stand. Let's do it. This is the song that everyone knows. It's the song that everyone knows. I just want to invite the ushers up as we prepare for our offering. Hmm. Feel free to give if you feel led. It's between you and God, but we're tracking it. One man has all the answers. I have all the answers. Showing a picture of a puppy and or a baby from an impoverished third world nation. Speaking softly to draw you in. And then emphatically driving home my point. On pause. Whispering. Repetition. Still pausing. Pained expression. Long prayer so that the worship leader can get back on stage. This is the closing song with strings that'll make you cry. Coming soon to your town, a new kind of church. You will be lifted high and challenged to grow. We call that Grotivation. You call this Sunday morning. Oh, well, thank you for the courtesy chuckle. It's uh, funny, sad, all rolled into one. A lot of manipulation that goes on and self-conscious manipulation of uh, what's happening in uh, Christian circles. So it's important for us as leaders to make sure you're aware of that uh, so that you can make appropriate choices, so that you can uh, counsel friends who are asking about uh, issues of philosophy of ministry and methodology 
extremely, extremely important uh, issues. All right, today is our last Sunday in the series that's on the screen, Where is God When It Hurts? Now, there are a number of pages left in your notebook if you have uh, all of the notes, but the last several pages are a self-examination, so they're not something that we intend to, to go over in any detail. But page 15 is our final lesson in section 2, which has been covering several purposes that God has for us in allowing suffering in our lives. He has a forward direction and an outward direction, an inward direction, but now here at the top of page 15 you see the upward direction of suffering. And if we were doing these in order of priority, this would actually come first in God's purposes, the upward direction. Because this has to do with how we see God and how God uses suffering in order for us to see him accurately and see him more clearly. And that is the ultimate purpose. So it's safe for last, but because it's last uh, does not mean that it's less important. In fact, it's the most important. And God has a number then of desires that he has with regard to uh, each of us and the suffering that he allows in our lives. The first one, top of page 15, is that he desires that we see his true character, his true character. Sometimes God's true character, what God is really like, is obscured by circumstances that have come into our lives. And God desires that those obscurities, those distortions of what he is like, be cleared and and removed. But the distortions can occur by some of the very suffering that God intends to use and does use in our lives to ultimately see him more clearly. You see the example there of Belinda. And Belinda was a a relatively young woman who had struggled for most of her life with things that had happened to her when she was a teenager. And her story is that she was and her family were members of a conservative Bible-believing church, and she was part of the youth group at that church. The church got a new youth pastor, and over time, that youth pastor began uh, abusing her as, as a teenager and others, not just her. Some years later, after they were young adults, uh, one of the young ladies came forward, and then more came forward, and uh, the truth was, the sad truth was found out. But as you might imagine, she was, and the others were, uh, adversely affected, and adversely affected for years, including when she was married. After she was married, she found it very difficult to engage in intimacy with her husband as a result of what she had, had gone through. That created problems for her, it created problems for him, uh, and their their marriage as well. But it also affected her view of God, because she came to believe that she was only only good and accepted if she was approved by someone in authority over her. And in her case, that approval uh, came through doing uh, these deeds that this... uh, sinful youth pastor uh, brought her into, but it stayed with her. I'm no good as I am. I'm only good if I gain the approval of those who are over me. And that's a common theme for people who have gone through abuse, that they believe they're no good. If they were good enough, then they wouldn't have gone through this abuse. There must be something about them that's not good enough. And they're also convinced that they need to please those somehow that are in authority over them. 
So they find themselves in a cycle of uh, pleasing those who are in authority and going through often uh, cycles of relationships in trying to achieve that as well. And so Belinda came for, for counsel, and she had to see God in a different light. And thankfully, she did come to see God in a different light. And she saw that God's approval is given to her through Christ. And as a result, she does not have to perform for his, for his approval or, frankly, for anyone else's. Uh, and God delivered her from that. And we say in the summary, if God lavishes mercy on the wounded, we should certainly do the same. Sin is sin, it should never be condoned, but sinners need a redeemer, and our redeemer saves by loving. So one of the things that God does, as we've seen in prior lessons, is use what we've gone through to help us uh, use that experience in the lives of, of others, but also to help us heal so that we can do that. And that's what the next paragraph is about. When we, like Job, see God for who he is, we can stop blaming him for our pain and, and suffering. We learn to accept both good and bad from the hand of the Lord. We can come to know God's power when we see him move in an impossible situation and meet our personal need. St. Augustine possibly had this in mind when he said, In my deepest wound, I saw your glory, and it dazzled me. Now, we heard a, we heard a testimony about this very kind of thing that Belinda experienced with uh, a sister in our own church at the beginning of the series several, several weeks ago. And if you weren't here for that, you can go and uh, click on the media portion, the audio at our website, and you can hear all of the past lessons, and you can hear that testimony of how God brought uh, this sister through abuse and through all of that, a seeking of approval by those in authority, and ultimately brought her to seeing God as he truly is, not the marred, distorted vision that she had developed. But this all raises a question, doesn't it? You know, all of this stuff that happens, and particularly when the most vulnerable among us are mistreated, when someone who's a child or someone who's a teenager is mistreated, it should, as I'm sure it does for all of us, grab at our hearts, and our hearts go out, and then our minds engage. And we ask ourselves, how can that happen? Where is God when, when that happens? Why doesn't God stop that suffering? Now, we've talked in prior weeks a while about why God does not eliminate suffering. But there is this question. It's an ongoing question, not only for Christians, but for anyone. Because everyone has a belief system of some sort, whether it's the Christian worldview or something else. And everyone has to explain what theologians and philosophers call the problem of evil. Why is there evil? And why is evil so pervasive? And in particular, why does evil happen to those who have done nothing, uh, done nothing wrong. And the Bible does not provide a final answer to that. We're left in Scripture with that dilemma, asking that question as, as, as does everyone have to ask. But Christianity does something that no other religion does. Because that question that everybody has to ask, if they're thinking at all, Everybody has a belief system, so how does your belief system accommodate the fact that there is cruelty and there is evil in the world? How does it accommodate that? And Christianity doesn't answer that directly, as I've said, but what it does do is give us a glimpse of God. And a glimpse of God that no other religion does or can give. Because ultimately the question about why does this happen is ultimately a question about what kind of God are you? 
Is this a God who cares? Is this a God who really does love? Is this a God who is really tender and merciful when these kinds of things are allowed to happen? That's the kind of question that we're asking. That's the underlying question. And the Bible does answer that underlying question. And it answers that question very directly in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you see, it's in Christianity alone that you have God himself coming to earth as man and God himself endures the suffering of a fallen world. So as we ask, what kind of God is this? This is the kind of God who comes, endures suffering, and endures that suffering not because of anything he has done, but because of his love and mercy directed toward toward us. And so it has sometimes been said that love is the final apologetic. Anybody ever heard that? Apologetics is the discipline in theology that is about defending the faith. So apologia is a Greek word in your New Testament. It means to defend what you believe. And apologetics is defending the truth of Christianity. And the final apologetic is, is love. The love of Christians shown to others who hate them and persecute them is a, is a final apologetic for the truth and the reality of Christianity. But ultimately, that love apologetic is seen in God's love given in Jesus because God became man and he endured the difficulties and the heinousness of a fallen world himself. So I encourage you to do this. As you ask the question, why does God let these things happen? Recognize that you're actually asking another question, and that is, what is God like? And Scripture does not directly answer the first, but it most definitely directly answers the second. What is God like? And behold your God, your merciful, loving, father-like God in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Now, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans 9. If you don't, I will, as we have been in previous weeks, just read Romans 9. And Romans 9 is the closest that the Bible comes to beginning to give an answer to the question, why does God allow these these things to happen? Now, it doesn't give a direct answer, but it does begin an answer to the question, why does a God allow bad things to happen? Let me begin reading. I'd like to read a, a fair portion of this, so bear with me. But go back to verse 6. Romans 9 and verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But, quote, through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. Not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, 
so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now let me just stop there. You read that and you go, huh, that part's not highlighted in my Bible. I don't have Jacob I loved, Esau I hated in cross cross stitch hanging in my bedroom. These are not the kinds of verses that most people turn to that often. But they are not only in your Bible, they're in a very prominent portion of your Bible. The center portion of the most doctrinal book in the entire uh, New Testament, the book of Romans. And here, Paul who wrote it, is trying to relate the God's plan in the gospel to God's plan given for his people, Israel, in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. And God is saying that God's promises made in the first part of the Bible are still all going to be fulfilled. And then he recounts some of those, those promises. And then he makes the point that it is the people that God has chosen, God's chosen people. We use that phrase, don't we? And many of us freely talk about Israel being God's chosen people, but then when we talk about God having chosen people to actually be his people and to be his people forever, we begin to recoil. And Paul here is saying they are his chosen people, his chosen people in both a physical way, to be a nation through whom God is going to achieve his purposes, but also God has chosen people in a spiritual way as well that are carrying out his purposes. And it is God, the sovereign God, who makes that choice quite apart from the good or the evil that this person has done. I don't know how much clearer he could be when he says before, first of all, he says they had one and the same mother. Before they were born or had done anything good or bad, God made a determination. Now get that. I heard one guy, well, I'll tell you who the guy was. It was James Dobson. Now, James Dobson over the years has had a lot of good family stuff, so I'm not hating on James Dobson, okay? Uh, and we, are in raising our girls, got a lot of help from James Dobson and some of his material. But James Dobson is not a theologian. <clears throat> and he was trying to grapple with Romans 9 on the radio. And he said in that drawl that he has, he was talking to his then co-host, Mike Trout, and he said, Mike, he said, you know, I think God detected some evil in Esau. That's how God made his choice. He detected some evil in Esau. Well, I mean, God spilled some ink saying, before they had done anything, what? Good or bad? So Dobson's groping to try to come up with some answer other than God is just sovereign and God can do what he wants. Okay, so that can't be that. We've got to come up with something else. God detected some evil in Esau. And the Bible explicitly says it was not because God detected something before they were, they were born or had done anything good or bad. And that raises another question. If he detected some evil in Esau, what did he detect in Jacob? I mean, that would have been evil too, right? So, nice try, but that won't work. And in Romans 9, Paul is saying God is absolutely sovereign over his world. And then in verse 14 asks the rhetorical question, what shall we say then? Because he knows, as he writes this, people are going to go, what? Come again? Well, what do we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? 
And he says, may it never be. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the one who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And then he talks about Pharaoh. And you guys know the story of Pharaoh and God hardening Pharaoh's heart. So in this lesson, we're not going to figure out all the intricacies of God's sovereignty. But what you ought to come away with is this. The Bible absolutely teaches unequivocally that God is on the throne and in absolute control of his world and he asks no one, no one for permission for what he does. No one. It doesn't depend on God counseling with anybody. God making sure it's okay with the people that he created. God does as he will for his purposes. Now, what are those purposes? Why does he choose? He can choose and does choose anything he wants. But why does he choose particular things? And that's what verse 19 begins to address. You will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? So if you're the person who says, that's not fair, because God couldn't blame us if he's in control of everything, the mere fact that you're bringing up the same objection that Paul's imaginary interlocutors, I just like to say interlocutors, have brought up in Romans 9. The fact that you're bringing up the same objection that they bring up proves that you're understanding and not wanting to accept the same one that they were understanding and not wanting to accept. You will say, well, then why does he find fault with us? Who resists his will? Verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Now here it is in verse 22. What if God? That's the way Paul puts it. What if? So as we think about then God's purposes, why does he allow particular things? I've said that the Bible does not answer that directly, but Paul approximates an answer here. What if God? Although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so, verse 23, for this reason, to make the riches of his glory, to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also among Gentiles. And so here's this approximation in verses 22 and 23. What if God has allowed evil in order to allow to shine the brilliance of his glory? That's what Paul is saying. You see the brilliance of God's character and God's glory against the backdrop of evil in his world. So God has chosen to allow evil in his world partly because... It's against that backdrop that you see his mercy, his grace, and his love. Think about it for a moment. How would those character qualities of God ever be made known? Now, you say, I don't know. Maybe God could come up with a way. He's God. And maybe he could. But in Romans 9, it's saying he didn't. And the way he is making the fullness of his glory, the fullness of his character known, is against what Paul is implying, the necessary backdrop than of allowing difficult things, evil in, in the world. So why does God do what he does? 
Ultimately, he does it to show his character. And that's precisely what's being described in Romans 9, 22, and uh, 23. His, his wrath is part of his character. That is his holy justice against sin. His mercy is part of his, his character. His condescending love toward sinners and their misery. But all of that can only be seen if there is the backdrop of sin and there is the backdrop of the effects of sin. And so Paul approximates an answer to that. But whatever your answer is, the final apologetic for Christianity is what kind of God is this God? And that is seen most graphically in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. All right, page 15 in your, in your notes. God desires that we see his true character and all of his character. But he also desires, uh, desires to prepare us for a blessing. And the example here is God's blessings for Job's faithfulness. And you remember the story of everything being taken from Job, but then uh, at the end of that story, God restored to him and restored to him beyond what he had uh, before the time of testing. And God desires to prepare us in, in difficulty often, not always, but often we see in Scripture him creating blessing out of difficulty. Job is one example. You see in the key passages there, Genesis 50, and that's the story of Joseph and the end of the story of Joseph, and it ended that way as well. God allowed this difficulty to come in the life of Joseph, being sold into to slavery through his providence, bringing him to a position of prominence in Egypt, his brothers coming to him, not even knowing he was still alive, uh, for food during the famine, and they throw themselves at Joseph's mercies, assuming he'll probably have them killed since he's in a position to do that. And that's what they would do if they were in his shoes. So they project on him and assume that they're toast at this point. And then he says famously in the verses cited there, 19 and 20 of Genesis 50, that you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. And then he says this, the saving of many souls. Remember that? So the good that God intended was a blessing. The good was for Joseph to be a blessing, not only blessed himself as Joseph was, but Joseph became a conduit of blessing to many others as a result of this. And often, that's what God will do in the midst of, of difficulty. Bottom of page 15. The character of God compels him to be a generous lover. He deliriously desires to bless his children. His blessings are never to be seen as indulgent. At the same time, our God knows that an ungrateful heart is ill-prepared for his unimaginable blessings. Unless he prepares our hearts and remakes our souls through the sting of suffering, we might selfishly bask in his blessings without any sense of humility or gratitude. So that is why, if God chooses to give this kind of blessing, and he doesn't always, but in the story of Job and Joseph and many others, he sometimes does, but it is often preceded by a time of humbling so that the recipient of those blessings will return thanks to God. Now, you see an example of this in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8. And this is after God has given the law. You'll remember in Deuteronomy 5, God has given the Ten Commandments. He gave, they're recorded in Exodus 20, but they're also recorded in Deuteronomy 5. 
So just a few chapters before, God has given his law. And then you have the famous passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that says, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul. And Jesus would say later that this is the first and greatest commandment. In Deuteronomy 6, it says, Hear, O Israel, verse 4, the Lord our God is, is one God. This becomes the, the theme for the nation of Israel, the doctrinal theme, that there are, the pagan gods and the polytheistic gods are not real. There is one God, and he is the God of Israel. And you are to bind these commandments on your foreheads and on your wrists and on your doorposts. Remember all that in Deuteronomy 6? But you're going to go in and you're going to, you're going to take the land that I have promised to you. And I've given you this law to govern you when you go into the land. But I want you to be grateful for what I've done. And verse 11 of Deuteronomy 8 is about that. Deuteronomy 8.11, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes which I am commanding to you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and gold multiply, and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud, and you'll forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through great and terrible wilderness, with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground, where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know that he might humble you, that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you might say in your heart, verse 17, my power and my strength and my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Do you see that theme then? I brought you out of the land of Egypt and... You were in the wilderness, and during that wilderness, I was preparing you for a time of blessing. And when you go into the land, this will be the blessing that I promised to you. But remember, remember what I brought you through. And I'm having to remind you, because it is our propensity to forget the goodness of the Lord and take upon ourselves the credit for what he does. If you'll take a look at page 16, then. God desires that we see his character that he prepare us for the blessings that he gives. And then thirdly, he desires to give believers dying grace. And that is, all of us, save uh, the Lord uh, rapturing us, taking us home, we will all die. And God is preparing us in suffering for that reality, that we will all die. But God is also in the suffering that he allows here, seeking to give us a proper perspective on dying. Hear this, friends. Dying is not only not the worst thing that could happen to you. If you know Jesus, it's the best thing that could happen to you. You say, you're not counseling we go out and end it all, are you? No, I'm not. But I am saying, when God chooses to take us home as a child of God, then we have eternity with him to look forward to. So in the life of the believer, dying is not something to be dreaded. Dying is something to, be, to look forward to. It's my home going. And God is preparing us to see that and to have that kind of perspective as he allows suffering in our lives. Now you see the example there on page 16, dying from a child's perspective. 
Let me read to you what some kids said about their view of dying. A group of researchers found out that even preschoolers have ideas about what it means to die. One young boy named Jimmy shared his view of death. When you die, they bury you in the ground. Your soul goes to heaven, but your body can't go to heaven because it's too crowded up there already. Judy said, only the good people go to heaven. The other people go where it's hot all the time, like in Florida. And it's, it's, it's not only hot, it's humid in Florida. Those of you that the, are the snowbirds that go to Florida, right? I speak truth. It's, it's humid down there. Uh, but I spent a few days in Arizona. I've been to Arizona one time. And they do have the dry heat, so it's not the humid. But listen, 112 is still stupid, okay? So I'm staying here. You guys go to Florida, the humidity and your dry heat. Uh, I'm staying here. John responded by saying, maybe I'll die someday. But I hope I don't die on my birthday because it's no fun to celebrate your birthday if you're dead. And then Marsha offered another perspective on death. When you die, you don't have to do homework in heaven unless your teacher is there too. <laughs> and what chances are your teacher will actually go to heaven? <laughs> All right, page 16. God's preparing us for dying grace and... Some may see death as a step backward. In fact, our human tendency is to pray that a loved one will live. But God, Paul reminds us that suffering may actually be God's way of bringing a Christian home to heaven. He wants us to understand that death is not a step backward, but a step forward. And I want to just jot down, and I'll read quickly, but jot down Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. Philippians 1, 20 to 23. And we looked at the book of Philippians a bit last week, and remember that Paul is under arrest, uh, chained to a Roman guard when he writes the four chapters of the letter to the Philippians. And he's waiting to find out what the verdict is going to be for him. He may be executed. He doesn't know. So he's waiting to hear the word on that while he writes this. And so he says in verse, uh, in verse 20, According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body. Notice, whether by life or by death. I don't know which. But then he goes on. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you. And so he's confident that that's probably what the Lord has for him, but he's also saying, I don't know for sure. But in either case, if I die, I'm with the Lord. If I stay, it'll be fruitful labor. You could just summarize those verses from Paul saying, even though I'm under house arrest and I'm suffering, it's all good. It's all good because I may die and go to heaven or I'm still serving the Lord in fruitful labor even if he chooses to keep me here. All right, and then lastly, or almost lastly, God desires to reward those who endure. The roller coaster is the example there. And the idea is, uh, you ever been to an amusement, if you're a roller coaster person, and I, uh, in my younger days, was a roller coaster person. So if you're a roller coaster person, you know you go to Cedar Point or wherever it is, and you devise your strategy 
for knocking other people out of the way to get to the newest and biggest roller coaster. And that's usually on the back 40 somewhere. And so you're trying to hustle and get there. Other people are trying to hustle and get there. You're elbowing people out of the way in a Christian sort of way, saying Jesus loves you as you do it all the way through. (laughs) But nevertheless, you try to get there. And as you're going and you and your friends are all excited about it and you see it in the distance, there it is, all this tangled metal and all of that, the new anaconda or whatever it is. And you see it about a mile away. And then you see a sign that says, Line for the anaconda begins here. You thought you were running up to the metal. No. You've got to wait for three hours here to get on the thing. And you do. And you're on it for 45 seconds. Now think about it. That's your roller coaster. You can plug in whatever pleasure it is that you're willing to sacrifice for for a short period of time. And God says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17, 2 Corinthians 4, 17, that our troubles here, you remember what he says, are momentary and what? Light. And eternity far outweighs them all. So here you are, willing to endure three hours for 45 seconds, and God is saying, you're three score and ten. Seventy years, Psalm 90, that I give you on average. If you're above 70 years now, then you're in overtime, according to Psalm 90. But God gives you your 70, 80 years, 90 years. And it is a blip on the screen compared to eternity. And God rewards, according to the passages that we have listed here, those who endure and show his character in that endurance and that suffering for this relatively brief time on earth. In fact, look at the bottom, very last sentence. God takes pleasure in how we respond to suffering. And he's promised to reward us for our suffering. But notice the how we respond. And that brings you to the last purpose that God has, top of page 17. How we respond is that God desires to be glorified in our response. Now, you've heard me say in the, in the past that glory, glorify God, bring glory to God, do all to the glory of God. All of that are buzzwords that we use without explaining what we mean about glory. Let me remind you what glory is. Glory is the manifestation of God's character. It's the display of God's character. So when we say, I want to glorify God with my life, what we're saying is, in my life, I want to display the character of God. And here, when we say God desires to be glorified and he uses suffering as part of the means that we do that, it's saying in the midst of difficulty, God wants his character and his supreme worth to be displayed by us in that. And when a Christian says to his or herself and says to those around them, by their words and by their actions, that in this difficulty there is something, no, someone, that is much more important than what I'm going through, namely Christ. That brings glory to God. That shows that who he is in his character is worth more than convenience, is worth more than pleasure, is worth more than anything else that happens to me. So that's what we mean when we say God desires to be glorified. He desires to see 
his character and the worth of his character displayed in all our circumstances. And that's what he desires to see when our circumstances include, include suffering. Now, the last several pages of your notebook are a self-examination uh, for you. Now, the only thing that I didn't get to is the examples under the myths. But the myths themselves on page 18 are all straightforward. And then the following pages are all questions and exercises that you can do to take everything we've talked about over the last several weeks and make personal application of that to your life. So I encourage you to look at pages 18 and following to do that very thing, okay? Next week, we will start the newcomers orientation and the new members class and the crossroads class, and maybe there's a friends group class, I'm not sure. We'll have uh, missionary Dan Huffstetler in here, and over those next four weeks, I won't be with you in here. I'll be in the newcomers orientation. And then on uh, October 12th, October 12th, we will start a new series called What's the Difference? And that series is What's the Difference Between World Religions and Different Denominations? That's what we're going to be looking at. Differences between world religions and differences actually between the myriad of denominations that are out there because people are very confused about that. That will start October 12th. If you were listening when I said that, we missed a Sunday, October 5th in between. And I didn't mention that because I won't be here on October 5th. I'll be in Florida at Pastor Matt's church uh, for his installation service on that day. Okay? All right, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for this Lord's Day, the opportunity to worship and to learn. Lord, thank you for the teaching of your word, which tells us ahead of time how to handle what we do not know is ahead. We don't know the particulars of what you have around the next bend in the journey that is our walk with you. But, Lord, you prepared us ahead of time anyway because you have told us about yourself and about your purposes for all that you allow in our lives. And so this afternoon, this week, some of us are going to encounter things that are not to our satisfaction, not to our liking. Help us to remember that you have used this series, you have used the teaching of your word to prepare us now for what you sovereignly have planned for us and that you have good purposes for us and for your glory in those things that you allow. Help us, Lord, not to be forgetful hearers. And may it make a difference in the way we encounter our circumstances this week and every day. Go with us, we ask you, uh, and grant us safety and bring us back next Lord's Day. In Jesus' name, amen.